What's up, y'all, and welcome to the Jack Vita Show. I'm your host, Jack Vita, here on March 30th, 2020. It's a Monday night. We are in quarantine at the moment. No sports, but that's okay, because we're going to take a trip down memory lane tonight and look back at the most disappointing teams of the new millennium ever since the year 2000, who have been the most disappointing teams in the world of sports. I have a man who I have to give credit to. This was his idea. CJ Revis joining me right now. He's been on a few of these podcasts now. How are you tonight, CJ? I'm great, Jack. Thanks for having me on. I think this is the uh, third time that yeah. I've been on. And so, you know, any had to come up with a reason to, to come back for a third time. <laughs> well, I love this idea. I reached out to you a couple weeks ago and just said, well, I, I shouldn't say reached out because I talk to you every week. Uh, but right. yes, <laughs> I, I said, CJ's got to have some good creative ideas for this podcast right now. No sports. What are some sports-like things that we could do in terms of history? Because I definitely don't want to be doing any of this clickbait, top 10 players of all time in the NBA or anything like that. And you gave me this idea. I think it was a great idea. Well, no, yeah. It's something I think about for my own teams fairly uh, frequently (laughs) of like when were the times that I felt most optimistic about a season only to watch it fall apart. And so, you know, I thought maybe going through – all the teams in every league might be a, a fun, almost therapeutic exercise. <laughs> I'm sure we have fans of the teams that we'll talk about today listening to this episode. But look, I, we went Major League Baseball, NFL, NBA, college basketball, college football. We didn't go the hockey route because I know, I, know, I know you're not a big hockey fan, CJ. It's not that I don't like hockey. It's just that I, I don't know anything about the nhl and it's too late for me to kind of pick it up yeah (laughs) just don't don't have the energy to to learn enough about it so yeah the nhl always goes off my radar yeah and when you have nba and college basketball and nhl all going on at the same time it's a lot to keep up with so chances are people aren't going to be very well versed in all three of those sports just because their seasons require so many games and they're all going on at the same time. Yeah. And I never played hockey growing up. I never really liked ice skating, which was, you know, skill number one to get into it. (laughs) And so because I never liked doing it, I never felt the need to watch other people do it. So CJ, we have this list here of the teams that are most disappointing of the new millennium. What do you think constitutes a team for this list? So I think it's a combination of things. One is you need some kind of media hype behind the team uh, because if there's no media hype and there's no expectations generally that they're going to do well, um, then they're not disappointing. And number two is there has to be some objective reason to think that the team can do well, right? There has to be some reason for you to go, there's hype behind them and I see why. And if you can connect those two and the team still falls apart, then I think you have a disappointing team. Yeah, well said. I would agree with you. So we have gone through, we've made a list here, but before we get to this list, CJ, I have to ask you from your personal experiences as a fan, most disappointing 
teams. I guess I'll let you you give me one, I'll give you one, and if we got any others after that, we can go back and forth for a little bit. But what comes to mind for you, CJ? So yeah, I got I have two teams, uh, a Bengals team and a Cubs team. I'll start with the Bengals team. The 2010 Cincinnati Bengals. Was that the TO team? Yes, that is the Terrell Owens team. That was the team that I in in 2009, the Bengals swept the division, went six and zero behind a run-heavy offense of Cedric Benson, and then ran into the Jets in the playoffs, where the passing game couldn't pick it up, and they just kind of fell apart at the end. And so they went into the offseason with a really solid defense. Cedric Benson coming back, Ocho Cinco still on the team, Carson Palmer still under contract. And so everyone was feeling pretty good. And then the front office did what they never do. They went out and made a splash. They got Terrell Owens. And it was, I think it was Antonio, Antonio Bryant. Yeah. The receiver from the Buccaneers. And that was supposed to be the splash on offense that was going to carry them past that level that they didn't reach the year before. And things fell apart. Antonio Bryant. Never got over a knee injury in the preseason. He never played a snap in the regular season. Terrell Owens had a really good year, actually. A lot of people overlooked that fact. He was one of the most steady players on the team and productive players. And the guy who couldn't put it all together was actually Carson Palmer. And it led to a lot of ill feelings towards Carson Palmer (laughs) that continue today because he he constantly blames the front office for not putting the pieces around him, not trying to win. And it's just, you know, based on that season, it's not true. He threw a ton of pick sixes. He was very loose with the ball. And, And they moved away from Cedric Benson, which made him very upset, obviously. And the team faltered. I think they went four and 12. Man, and it just and and that caused them to kind of blow it up and rebuild and go after Andy Dalton and AJ Green in the next draft, which led to a nice era of Bengals teams. But that 2010 season, the Bengals were on the list of you know Super Bowl contending teams because they made the splash, they did the things they typically don't, and it didn't come together. So that stood out to me as the Bengals' most disappointing. CJ, that's a good selection, and I have to say, there's a silver lining for you. Joe Burrow is going to be the Tiger King. He will be a Bengal. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we got. I'm looking really. I'm really looking forward to Joe Burrow on the Bengals. I'm really looking forward to the season. The Bengals have done a lot of things that, again, this offseason similar to 2010, except in a different way. They're making free agent moves like they've never made. They blew up the defensive room and getting new players in and now adding Joe Burrow to a talented offense. You know, this is now Zach Taylor's team. Zach Taylor took over the team last year after the Super Bowl, so he was kind of behind. A lot of people forget this. He was behind on offseason planning because the Bengals couldn't announce that he was the hire and he couldn't get to work until the Super Bowl was over while other teams could do what they needed to do. So this year he gets to finally put his print, you know, his fingerprints on the team and so far I like what I see. All right. So I'll give you a Cubs team and then I got another team that I'll share in a second. But I want to get my Cubs one in here to see if it's the same one that you're thinking of. I'm thinking about the two thousand four Cubs. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> We're on the same page of this one. <laughs> yes. So the Cubs that year predicted to win the World Series by Sports Illustrated, there was that beautiful cover of Kerry Wood and Mark Pryor 
on the cover together. Lost in the NLCS the year before, but they were supposed to take the next step. I think they acquired Greg Maddox. Yeah. He was on that team. Yep. And so they had a great pitching staff and then midseason traded for Nomar. And they just, I mean, again, this was such a really talented team. I think in a lot of ways was more talented than the 2003 team. Also, they had Derek Lee that year. That was the first year that Derek Lee was on the Cubs. Yeah. On paper, a more talented team than the team in 2003 that came inches away from playing in the World Series. And they end up blowing a lead in the last week of the season in the wild card spot and missing the playoffs. Yeah, uh, we're on the same page, Jack. That was my most disappointing Cubs team. Yeah. I mean, the acquisition of, of Greg Maddox and Derek Lee, you finally look to the next year and you're like, we are better than we were last year, and we came within five outs of making it to the World Series. Um, but, you know, in hindsight, the one thing that I think we miss a lot is the 2003 Cubs team overall record was not terrific. No. The, the division was overall a pretty weak uh, record-wise division. And so the, the fact that they got to the NLCS and were that close was itself a surprise that year. And, you know, in that after you achieve that and you're looking to the next season, you kind of forget that. But now, you know, 15 years later, it's apparent that that team was never actually as good as we thought it was. Yeah, absolutely. Great points there. I agree with you. I'll give you my other one, and then we'll get to the list. 2017 to 2018 Northwestern Wildcats basketball. Wow. Okay. In 17, it was their first year ever making the tournament, and they entered the next season I think number 18 overall in the country. They were a top 25 team. There was talk that they could win the Big Ten that year, and they end up, they were below 500 in the Big Ten that year, and they did not make the tournament. Yeah, and they haven't gotten much better since. Um, I mean, like, uh, I remember everybody talking about Northwestern making the tournament. Again, that is like another, that's not an overhyped team, but it was an overhyped achievement. Everybody focused on how, oh my God, Northwestern's in the tournament. It's the building block of the new program that's to come and and all this stuff. But also, on the one hand, it was disappointing because they're a Big Ten team that should not have been their first time in the tournament. Yeah. And also winning a game, which by the way, if you look back at the game, Vanderbilt blew it. There yeah. was a foul down the stretch that was just, you know, it's incomprehensible that gave Northwestern the win. So there was, and then as, when you put onto it, the, the next year, Loyola went to the Final Four. It, it kind of put a damper on that season for me and the hype that came with it. Because I'm like, well, if Loyola can go to the Final Four, surely Northwestern can put together a <laughs> right. team yeah. that can make the tournament two years in a row. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Just my thoughts. <laughs> Could not have said it better myself. CJ, we have so much fun cooked up for the listeners tonight. So here's how this is going to work. We are talking about the most disappointing teams of the new millennium, and we're going to go in chronological order. So the first team I have on this list is in 2002. And from that point on, we'll just go chronologically and we'll eventually get to 
the year 2019. So we got a solid 20 years of content here. And I have a list here. CJ also has some teams. We compared notes before we went on. So CJ, go ahead and jump in at any point when we're running down this list and you have a team that I don't have on my list. Can you do that for me? Yeah, I'll (laughs) jump in when I have no problem jumping in, Jack. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we're going to go through these teams and we're going to talk about them. And let's get started here with the 2002 St. Louis Rams. Yeah, you, you know, I think you could give a, an explanation here because a lot of teams remember the the Rams of the Super Bowl teams, you know, the ones that lost to the Patriots, the one that made it and won the Super Bowl against the Titans. The 2002 team and how that all and how the greatest show on turf kind of came to a close, I think it's outside of a lot of people's view and memory of what happened yeah so this was the beginning of the end of the greatest show on turf that prior year in 01 they went to the super bowl that was the greatest show on turf you may remember kurt warner marshall falk tory holt isaac bruce just an unbelievable offense all all the way around i think ricky prohl was on that team too they were stacked and then they go into the next year Sky high expectations. The Rams end up going seven and nine. They missed the playoffs when they were expected to win the division that year. What was really interesting to me was just how poorly Kurt Warner played in this season. He went, he started their first three games, then he broke his thumb, and they ended up going winless with Kurt Warner that year. They went 0 5. But. <laughs> and this is what's this is where I think it really spelled the beginning of the end was they went six and zero with Mark Bulger that year. You know, I I vaguely remember the Mark Bulger Mark Mark Bulger insanity of that year. <laughs> well, it started in this year, and then the next year, Kurt Warner went in as a starter once again, as you would expect him to. You say, okay. He did not play well, but he broke his thumb. He had a passer rating of 67.4 that year with the Rams. And despite the Bulger, who they picked up as a free agent, I believe, the next year it continued. That's where Kurt Warner ended up getting bench, and Bulger came in, and Bulger played. He ended up being a pro bowler in his career, and the Rams were a solid team with Mark Bulger. This is really just, again, Kurt Warner's career was just so bipolar, I want to say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it makes his resurgence with the Cardinals that much more impressive. The fact that, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I don't think Mark Bulger was ever anticipated to be an NFL starting quarterback or one no. that makes the Pro Bowl or, or any of that. Um, and so to see him bench for Mark Bulger, you would think that's where the road ends for a former league MVP, I believe. Yeah. And <laughs> you, yeah, you think that's it. That's game over. And then he comes back and has some really good years with the Cardinals, not only just the, the Super Bowl run uh, where they lost to the Steelers, but also that shootout. I think it was against the Packers in the playoffs. Yes. Where the following I mean, year. that was just an just two really impressive performances. So, you know, while it's a disappointing team for the Rams, something impressive there for Kurt Warner, at least. Yeah. 
That's true. It was a very strange year. I just I can't believe that. I going back though. 0-5 with Kurt Warner, 6-0 with Mark Bulger. Yeah, I don't know what what occurred there. You, you kind of have to wonder if teammates were responding differently to Kurt Warner, if there was something in Kurt Warner's head that was kind of going wrong. But because everybody liked him, it seemed, throughout his entire career. Yes. But to see just a stark difference between – Kurt Warner, who was a really good quarterback, to Mark Bulger. I mean, I I don't think that he was like a showstopper in that season, but the results speak for themselves. Yeah, so disappointing team that year for the Rams. The following season, similar type of story with the runner-up team coming off a Super Bowl trip, and that was the 2003 Oakland Raiders yeah, and there's a scapegoat here. There's a fun fact here with this team, but I'll let you go into their background a little bit. But there's, you know, there's a fun scapegoat that a lot of people are going to point at when they know. So, <laughs> going back, here's what's interesting with the Raiders. I'm really interested to hear what you have to say. The Raiders, for people who have only been following football for the last 15, almost 20 years, the Raiders were a dominant franchise at one point. And in 2001, they play in the divisional round where they had that game where they, they lost the tuck rule game in the snow in Foxborough. Iconic game. They had a great team that year. Then the next year, they get blown out in the Super Bowl to John Gruden's Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And then the following year, you just think, okay, Oakland Raiders, they've got a lot of talent here. Rich Gannon, Jerry Rice, Tim Brown, uh, Charlie Garner, and Tyrone Wheatley in the backfield. They had both Charles Woodson and Rod Woodson in their secondary on the defense. Just talent really everywhere. Hey man, now, Se- what- Sebastian Janikowski. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was an older group, though, and it just all of a sudden they went from being at the top of the AFC to 4-12, and 12, missing the playoffs, it was unbelievable. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, what Raiders fans would probably try to point to was the fact that, I think it was week 7, uh, Kurt Warner, or excuse me, Rich Gannon, went down for the year. But they were not winning before then. I mean, you don't just, you don't fall into a 4-12 and 12 year after a Super Bowl year. Like, you know, you at least should be competitive, especially if you're keeping a lot of those players and they're coming back the next year. But, uh, I mean, a 4-12 and 12 drop-off and, you know, a lot of these games, you look at them, they're not close and they're really low-scoring games for the Raiders. It's just, you know, when you had the high-flying offense before, it's just a huge disappointment. Yeah, absolutely, and that really ends up being the last of the Raiders for a long time because they've set up this uh, reputation of incompetence, really, for the next 15 years, but it looks like maybe John Gruden is uh, starting to turn the corner with this squad. Possibly, but some fun coaching names on that uh, 2003 Raiders staff. You have head coach Bill Callahan. Who, yes, he's still he's a coordinator now. Uh, offensive coordinator Mark Tressman <laughs> and offensive assistant coach Jim Harbaugh. 
Wow. <laughs> yeah, what a what a interesting coaching squad for that. So Mark Trestman, I was gonna say he was he's the scapegoat uh, for that offensive <laughs> team, but I looked into it and he was the offensive coordinator the year before when they went to the Super Bowl and had the the high flying uh, offense. So I guess you can't yeah. point to him as the scapegoat, but you know, Bears fans nonetheless probably still want to. <laughs> So the next one I have here, and I, I should say, really, pretty much 95% of my list is teams that did not make the playoffs because CJ and I were talking about what constitutes disappointing. And the way that I looked at it was regular season disappointment for the most part. But there was a team that made it to the NBA Finals in 2004 who... Really, it's just it seems like they kind of belong in this category because their loss in the NBA Finals in 2004, the Los Angeles Lakers, ended up just their Shaq and Kobe era just ended from that point on. Yeah, that's definitely a disappointing team. But Do you think they should be on this list? No, I, I struggle to say teams that lose in the finals are disappointing. Yeah. I think if you... I think teams can make the playoffs still be disappointing if you get blown out or if it's just a really pathetic showing. But if you make the NBA Finals and you lose to a really good team like the Detroit Pistons were, I I, I struggle to see that that's you know all that disappointing. I think when you get to those when you get to the final two teams, anything can happen. Uh, I mean, that's not to say that they're not an incredibly notable team and maybe should have won the finals. Yeah. But a lot of other issues obviously came into play with the drama between Kobe Shaq, Phil Jackson, and it just was an untenable relationship. And it came to its inevitable but disappointing end. But I wouldn't, I would, I struggle to say that they are, you know, deserve a spot on, on the type of list that we're making at least. All right, honorable mention. Yeah. Because I just think they're interesting. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're noteworthy on any list that you can put them on. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, Carl Malone, Gary Payton on that squad. I was thinking back to that year and how that Pistons team ended up beating them. And the Pacers in the Eastern Finals that year, too. It really, I think that year in itself epitomized what the NBA does not want to become ever again with having defensive dominance. Right. And I can't remember, was that the Malice at the Palace year? That was the following fall. Okay, because I, I know that there was that title window for the Pacers there, and Ron Artest threw a big wrench into that window uh, with that. Yeah. I couldn't remember if it was that year or the following. Yeah. Well, in 04, Ron Artest, he was an MVP candidate. <laughs> <laughs> what a guy. What a career. <laughs> But we keep moving to the 2004 Summer Olympics, and something really unbelievable happened at those Summer Olympics. What happened, CJ? Oh, the uh, the USA didn't win the basketball gold medal. Yeah, <laughs> which you know, on its own, is always uh, anytime that doesn't happen, it's shocking. Yeah. So they finish in third place. Do you have the roster pulled up? I don't have it pulled up in front of me, um, but I mean, there's Tim Duncan, Allen Iverson, LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony. Obviously, Carmelo and LeBron 
are on the beginnings of uh, of their careers. They're drafted just the year before, but you know, still got some big names on that team that you think would carry you to a gold medal. It was a good mix of players. You, it's really unbelievable. Allen Iverson, Stephon Marbury, Dwayne Wade. So Wade, Anthony, and LeBron being those three guys who had just finished their rookie year. The one college player, Ameka Okafor, Carlos Boozer, Sean Marion, Amari Stoudemire, Tim Duncan, Lamar Odom, and Richard Jefferson. Yeah, I mean, that's a team that that should win you a gold medal. And obviously, given Team USA's uh, history in the Olympics is just shocking to see them lose. Although if you just now looking at their final results, I mean, they were cutting it close sometimes a, <laughs> yeah. a six point win against Greece in 2004, <laughs> uh, a four point loss to Lithuania. I mean, yes. a 19 point loss to Puerto Rico. I mean, just what is, what is going on in that team? Yeah, and the other two games, Spain, Lithuania, those were uh, two of their wins. Those were decided by single digits as well, and they beat Australia by no more than 10. Yeah, and so you can look back. So you can kind of have two takeaways here. On on the one hand is that the international play was rising uh, to a level that could compete uh, with Team USA because obviously the original Dream Team had such an impact on basketball around the world that other countries got more into it and developed better teams and better players. And so you could say like, this was the beginning of that, but also, you know, two years later, team USA lost to Greece in the world, world basketball (laughs) semifinals. Um, And so team USA had to go through a real, you know, change of how the program worked because you used to be able to just throw throw together these NBA stars and they would carry you through. Uh, but then the European leagues, they all developed uh, to be really good. So Team Greece during that era, you know, during the late 2000s was really good. Spain had phenomenal teams with the Gasol brothers, Ricky Rubio. Um, I mean, they, these teams did improve. But on the other hand, USA should be winning these games. They should not be losing yeah. to Puerto Rico by 19 points. I mean, at 2004, that those teams were not yet at that level to compete. Yeah, I really think a 30 for 30 year documentary needs to be made about this team. I think it would be so fascinating to hear some of the stories, but I don't know if anyone wants to make that documentary. Yeah, I mean it just it has the looks of a team that thought they would waltz through the tournament and thought that these other teams would be intimidated by them, which clearly they weren't. I don't know if you have this pulled up, but I I have it if you haven't seen these you want to guess who the leading scorer for this team was? Did you see that? I didn't see who the leading scorer was. I'm so it had Allen Iverson, Tim Duncan, LeBron, Carmelo. I would. It has to be probably either Tim Duncan or Allen Iverson. I think LeBron, Carmelo are too young at that point. You are correct. AI huh? leading scorer, leading rebounder, Tim Duncan. Yeah, that makes sense. But see, that's why the. The loss in 2006 is almost even more inexplicable. You have Carmelo Anthony, Dwayne Wade, uh, LeBron James, all on that 2006 team, all with 
several years of NBA experience under their belt at that point. They are NBA superstars by the time they play in 2006 and couldn't beat Greece uh, in the semifinal. And I, and they couldn't defend a pick and roll. It was it was terrific for me to watch. Um, but, I mean, they should have won. The Greece is just not better than them. Because I know you want to talk about that one. CJ, who was on that Greece team? Uh, there was one former NBA player. Was it Costa? No, it was Vasily Spanoulis. Oh. Yeah, and then other than Can't that... Can't say I remember him. There was a... Well, he played for the Rockets. I mean, there's some there's some fun stories about when he played for the Rockets and was a bench player. He always complained uh, to Jeff Van Gundy about how he wasn't getting more playing time and how he would <laughs> tell Jeff Van Gundy that... Back in my home country, I'm Tracy McGrady, <laughs> and Tracy McGrady and uh, Jeff Van Gundy responded to him and said, "Well, in in this league, Tracy McGrady is Tracy McGrady." <laughs> um, but the most fascinating player on that Greek team in 2006 was uh, Baby Shaq. Baby Shaq. Sophocles Shortianidis. He was, I mean, he had a really good game against the USA. He was referred to as Baby Shaq was his nickname. If you Google him, I'm sure he'll come up. Um, but he really didn't do much after that game. <laughs> <laughs> see, when you said Baby Shaq, I was thinking Eddie Curry. Yeah, see, no, no. This is the better version of Baby Shaq. <laughs> so, yes, this 2004, they called it the Nightmare Team, coached by Larry Brown, third place at the Summer Games. Still shocking to this day. Yeah, and it the good thing was it catapulted Manu Ginobili to new heights. Yes. That was probably the only good thing. <laughs> well, he was already in the NBA, so how do you think that Ar- Argentina won gold that year? Mm-hmm. How did it propel him to new heights? What would you say? Well, I mean, he's the star of a team that beat the U.S. team when it mattered, right? So yeah. Lithuania and Puerto Rico beat them, but it was in group play. It just doesn't have that same feeling, um, but then when you know when it matters and you think, oh, now they got to now it's win and you're done or lose and you go home, uh, you'd think that they would come out and play hard, and which they did. But Manu Ginobili showed that you know he's he was a top player in the world. He was not just some foreign player who was coming in would have to learn the league and all that. He was ready to be a star at that point. Yes, so we move on from that summer, 2004, to the fall of 2004. The next one on my list, the 2004 Baltimore Ravens. Yeah, I don't remember a whole lot about the 2004 Baltimore Ravens. Uh, it was the year before the Bengals went 11-5. and five. I know the Bengals went 8-8 eight and eight in 2004, Carson Palmer's first year as a starter, but I don't remember a whole lot about this Ravens team. Well, I will refresh your memory. Yes, please. <laughs> you got it, CJ. So the 2004 Ravens were coming off a division title in 2003. Looking at their division, really there wasn't a whole lot. to. You'd think they wouldn't have too much competition because you mentioned Bengals were rebuilding at this point. They were It was Carson Palmer's first season as their starter, as you mentioned. Uh, the Browns are the Browns, and <laughs> the Steelers, looking at their quarterback situation, Tommy Maddox was the starter going into that season with 
a rookie Ben Roethlisberger waiting in the wings and it ended up being that the Steelers ended up having this amazing year the way it went 15 and one won the division but this Ravens team there was so much hype on this team and I believe that I truly believe and I know CJ you and I weren't that old in 2004 but my opinion as a 10 year old at the time was I thought the Baltimore Ravens (laughs) were going to win the Super Bowl that year I mean, it wasn't. I it wasn't a crazy opinion. I mean, they were a consistently competitive team during that era. Their defensive stars were in the prime of their careers, and the offense had been doing enough. I mean, it it definitely had the the parts for a successful early two thousands NFL team. Absolutely. So one of the things you you mentioned, there was a lot of stars on that defense. Do you know who joined this team? Do you remember who came out of retirement to play on the 2004 Baltimore Ravens on their defense? No, I don't. Prime. Oh, wow. (laughs) Was he good? (laughs) He was still good. It was his last year, but he had retired. He tried to play a little baseball. He came back to football after he had, I think he was at CBS in 2003 as an analyst, and he didn't really get along too well with everyone that he was working with. And so he went back to the NFL. You look at this defense, Ed Reed, Ray Lewis, of course, Peter Bulware. There was so much talent on that defense, not to mention what I think Jamal Lewis was coming off that amazing year where he I think 03 was when he led the league in rushing so there was so much to like about this team they ended up going seven and nine and I don't think anyone was prepared for the disastrous career of Kyle Bowler yeah I mean nobody was prepared for the disastrous career of Kyle Bowler um but also when you know they're nine and seven they didn't I think they missed the playoffs by a game kind of got hit with in their defense, kind of got hit with a perfect storm of the Steelers being essentially unstoppable that year. Yes. And then the Bengals no longer being a walkover team in their second year with Marvin Lewis. So, you know, you got four games against those two opponents who typically in years past, you could count on winning at least three of them. All of a sudden that, you know, those are tougher games than when you you initially anticipated. Yeah, and thank you for correcting me. I misspoke. I said seven and nine. They did go nine and seven, so they were a solid team. But as you mentioned, the division was tougher, tougher schedule, didn't come together for the Ravens. And they ended up having to, I don't think they made the playoffs for a couple of years until they traded for Steve McNair as a short-term solution at quarterback before drafting Joe Flacco. Yeah, and I mean, looking back at their season, they were seven and three at one point. Not a lot of teams are seven and three and then miss out on the playoffs. Yeah, but they they lost four out of their last six. A blowout to the Patriots, a one point loss at home to the Bengals. I mean, that's kind of what we just were talking about, and a loss to the Steelers. So yeah, that division waking up, uh, being competitive, cost them a playoff spot. Definitely. So my next team on my list is actually three years after this. So I don't have anyone between 04 and the fall of 2007. CJ, did you have anyone in this gap on your list? I don't know if they fall into this gap, 
the Yao Ming T-Mac Rockets. Yeah, right around then. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's hard to point to any one individual team of theirs being disappointing, but I don't think they ever won a playoff series. And, you know, having Yao Ming and T-Mac, two studs in the league at that point, and not being able to get out of the first round, um, I mean, that's just a disappointing era for, for Rockets fans. And I think they're in, in the midst of another one right now. Yeah. We'll, we'll see if NBA ends up coming back, but uh, that very well could be the case. I don't think you're wrong. I think in just off the top of my head, I was thinking 2008-2009 was probably the year when they added Ron Artest with Yao okay. and McGrady. And they ended up, McGrady ended up getting hurt that year. So I think it was a really big missed opportunity, but that was probably the most mm-hmm. talented team and still didn't get out of the first round. Yeah, I mean, that that was kind of the story of their teams was either Yao Ming was hurt or T-Mac was hurt. Um, it's just one of those teams that you love playing with in a video game, but they never put the pieces together. I, I'm sorry. They actually did make the playoffs that year. With I mean, they did win a playoff series without T-Mac that year. Was that the year that they won like 25 games in a row? I don't know if they won that many, but they did win a lot. Yeah, it was the gotta look that up just now. Oh, the Rockets' winning streak. I got because I remember them having one. Oh, great! That's not what I meant. <laughs> On the back of yeah, so twenty-two game. Yeah, winning yeah, streak. yeah. It was oh eight oh nine, right? Yeah, yeah. So that was probably their best team, and McGrady ended up going down with an injury at some point, which really capped their potential, but they still did win a playoff series. Disappointing, but such a weird era for that team. They end up winning more playoff series without McGrady than with him. Yeah, it's just, it's one of those where you can't blame the front office for the moves that they made. I mean, you get a chance to add Tracy McGrady, you do it. You get to pair him with Yao Ming, you do it. I mean, I don't think that they could look back on on that era and be like, you know, we made a mistake. Yeah, I liked Rafer Alston, too. I thought he was a solid point guard. Oh, everybody likes Rafer Alston, (laughs) but he just wasn't good enough. (laughs) For sure. So anyone else before 2007? Not that I can think of offhand. I mean, I had disappointments. I can't think of any individual team that I, I saw as like, you know, a contender that failed uh, to get even close. Next one on our list will go to the world of college football. Our first of two college football teams making this list, the two, 2007 Michigan Wolverines opened the season at number five in the country in the polls. Chad Henney, Michael Hart, Mario Manningham all returning. Just probably on paper, you look at the best trio, quarterback, running back, receiver for that year, those three guys. Just so much talent. That previous year they lost. They were they played that game as number two in the country, to, and they lost to number one in the country, Ohio State. It was a great game. But going into this next year, you think, all right, those three stars are back. They're going to be 
really, really good, and they're going to compete for a spot in the national championship. And then what happened, CJ, week one? <laughs> well, everybody remembers, Jack. I mean, it was <laughs> one of the most stunning losses in college football history. It was the loss to Appalachian State. Yes. <laughs> like, remember being in was seventh grade and just losing my mind. Eighth grade. Eighth grade, yeah. Just losing my mind at that time. It was unbelievable. They were a Division One AA team at the time. Yeah, and I mean, in hindsight, maybe we never gave them enough credit for being good, but also not a team that Michigan should have lost to. No, and I mean... Especially look, not at home. Yes, <laughs> in a pay-to-play game. Yeah, an attendance of 109,000. Yeah, you know, against a Division One AA team and you're number five in the country. Yeah, that's... Uh, it's not a game that that you should even come close to losing. <laughs> we the reason you said maybe we haven't given Appalachian State enough credit, but I mean, is there anyone from that team that you could name? No, I can't. No. Yeah, no, exactly. I can name the program. I know that they've had, you know, some type of success since then, but no, I don't know what anybody on that team. Yeah, <laughs> there's a reason. I mean, they were. Yeah. They were the FCS champions that year, but again, this was just, that was probably the most stunning college football game that I can remember. Yeah, uh, most stunning in terms of upset quality. Yes, I would exactly. I would agree with that. Most stunning, I would say, was the Boise State-Oklahoma Bowl game. Yeah. That, that was stunning in its own, for its own reasons. Um, but yeah, in terms of, you know, shocking conclusion that you didn't expect yeah that's Appalachian State Michigan yeah I agree so that Michigan team ended up going nine and four very disappointing for a team look they ended up I think they finished the season as a top 25 team but the bar that year was championship or bust and they busted in week one (laughs) yeah I mean they ended up winning a bowl game so you give some credit for the bounce back you know they put they figured it out a little bit and were able to salvage it and make it a decent season which a lot of teams don't do that and i think there's some other college teams down the list that you know we see when things start going wrong they go completely wrong so i give them their credit for you know staying composed and making the most out of a bad season but that loss makes it a bad season regardless of what happens afterwards. Yeah, and that's just how it goes in college football when you only yeah. play 11, 12 games. Exactly. So my next one here that I have goes is a year later, 2008 to 2009. Was there anyone in this year in between that you had on your list? Um, no, nobody I had on my list in that year in between. Okay, just making sure. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. <laughs> 2008, 2009, we shift over from college football to college basketball. And this is the first college basketball team of two on this list. 2008, 2009, Notre Dame fighting Irish. Yeah, uh, Luke Herringody. Yes. The team was supposed to... <laughs> Luke Herringody, one of the, you know, just... It's hard to describe the kind of college basketball star Luke Herringody was but he was a college basketball star yes um and they 
had a really good program at that point, and we're coming off a pretty solid year, and we're expected to be, you know, they were expect they were I think they were ranked number at least in the top ten. They were number nine to open the season. Yeah. In addition to Luke Herringoti, they had brothers of two North Carolina stars, Ben Hansbrough and Luke Zeller. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a team that you think should do really well. Um, and they just, again, another team just had the hype. There was reason to believe the hype. Didn't put it together. Expected to finish first or second in the Big East that year. This was before all of the conferences stopped making sense collectively from geographic locations, and you forget who's in what conference and all that. They were in the Big East for basketball at the time. They went 8-10 and 10 in the Big East, and they missed the tournament. Yeah, and you look at their their season, and there's a particularly rough patch from they didn't win a game from January 12th to February 7th. But also you look at it, and again, I keep finding ways to defend these teams that were really disappointing in their defense on this one. They were put through the ringer over that court, over that month. Number 20, Louisville. Number 8, yeah. Syracuse. Number 3, Connecticut. Number 8, Marquette. Number 3, Pittsburgh. And number 15, UCLA. That's, you know, that's a tough stretch of games. Yeah, that is a tough stretch. I think it shows how tough the Big East was, especially in this time period, too. And you didn't even mention that Villanova team. Uh, I guess they must not have played them over that stretch, but Villanova ended up going to the Final Four that year. Yeah, and... Again, like I, I said that in their defense, it's a tough stretch of games, but a quality tournament team, a top 25 team, you come away with a couple wins on that. Maybe yeah. maybe you are 500, maybe you're a game below 500 on that, but you don't walk away on a, whatever, a seven-game losing streak or whatever it was, um, and they went on a seven-game losing streak. And every time they played a ranked team this year, it seemed like it didn't go right. They lost at Connecticut again later in the year. They lost against Villanova later in that year. So it's just, you know, you got to put together a win against ranked teams at some point. And I think that's an example of once things started going south, they went way south. Absolutely. In 2010, the first team from the next, the following decade on our list, the 2010 Minnesota Vikings, who were coming off an NFC title game loss where they lost to the Saints in overtime. Brett Favre had maybe the best year of his career in, <laughs> oh, no. in 2009. It was unbelievable what Favre yeah, was doing. I, just, I, I know some Packer fans who wouldn't uh, wouldn't be happy with that statement, but you know, it was up there. It was up not, there. Yeah, it's not factually that incorrect, but uh, you know, to, to a lot of Packers fans saying. Brett Favre had the best year with the Vikings. (laughs) (laughs) That's a tough pill to swallow. What ends up happening, and again, weapons everywhere. Adrian Peterson, they started out the season three and seven. Head coach Brad Childress got fired midway through the season. They end up finishing six and ten, last in the NFC North. I was not expecting them to flop that badly that year. Yeah, I mean, a team with coming off the success they had the year before, one bad play away from going to the Super Bowl, um, 
yeah, it just it didn't. You don't think that team's going to fall apart, especially when Adrian Peterson is still in the prime of his career. Then uh, you think you can pretty much ride him to success at that point and have a decent defense. Jared but, Allen. Yeah, exactly. And it's just you know, going one in five in that division, you're not going to have success. <laughs> And of course, the Bears fans listening to this, I I sure that some of them take pride in the fact that Brett Favre ended up playing his last game against the Bears, where Corey Wooten, a Northwestern product, ended up sacking him, knocking out Brett Favre, and I don't think he ends up playing another snap in his career after that point. Yeah, you know, he he dominated them for long enough. So I, I they if they want that as their victory, <laughs> that they got Brett Favre at the very end when he was on a, a bad Vikings team, you know, they can have that. But he pretty much owned them over the course of his entire career before that. So I, I don't think he's having many sleepless nights <laughs> thinking about the last time he played the Bears. <laughs> <laughs> so the one thing I really remember about this team, a couple of things. Number one, they traded for Randy Moss and brought him back in the middle of the season. Yeah, that was Randy Moss's last. Uh, was yeah. that his last stint? Or no, because then he had one with the 49ers later, I think. Yeah, in 2011. Yeah, but, so, but yeah. he was on his last legs, and you thought maybe you could get Brett Favre and Randy Moss and get some of that kind of early 2000s dream team magic a little bit but you know age is on or time is undefeated cj i know that espn has been working really hard they want to make over their monday night football booth i just think put brett Favre and randy moss in there together i think it'd be great (laughs) you you definitely would get a clash of styles um yeah i (laughs) god but i know that they're getting almost desperate to try to make over that booth and yeah. <laughs> just throwing money at anybody they can find. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, come on, have, have some pride. <laughs> <laughs> the one high point of that season that I remember, do you remember this CJ that they had a game against the Eagles in week 16 and the Metrodome collapsed? I want to say, I remember the Metrodome collapsing. Yes. Yeah. And so the game ended up getting moved, and I think they played it where the Minnesota Gophers play. I I could be wrong on that, but the game got played on a Tuesday. I don't know how many other games there have been on a Tuesday night in football history. So is that the one? uh, Is is that week 15 against the Bears? Week 16 is against the Eagles. Okay. Mine's coming up as being played at in philadelphia oh okay maybe at least least that's what wikipedia says yes yes so maybe i'm remembering it wrong but i just remember for what there must have been another reason maybe they ended up just deciding to play the game in philly some reason that why would the game get moved from a sunday to a tuesday yeah so week 14 they played at ford field in downtown detroit even though they were against the giants Week 15, they played at the Gophers Stadium against the Bears. Yeah. And then, yeah, week 16, they were at uh, Philadelphia. And then, I guess you could say, returned home to Ford Field (laughs) to play an away game against the Lions. (laughs) So they played at Ford Field twice? 
twice. Uh, well, once was originally scheduled. They were supposed to play the Detroit Lions Week 17 at Ford Field. So that went on as scheduled. Week 14, they were playing the Giants, what was supposed to be a home game, that got moved to Detroit. <laughs> Man, I don't know. So why did this game get moved from a Sunday to a Tuesday? I have no idea. I... So there was a snowstorm in Philadelphia that made them move. The, it, was a, it was a road game, and so it got moved to a Tuesday night. But I remember this game because I was watching it at a Buffalo Wild Wings, and the Bears ended up having an amazing year that year. They ended up going to the NFC title game, and they were up against the Eagles for that home field advantage to get that first round bye in the first round of the playoffs. So everyone in this bar was just going crazy, rooting hard for the Vikings, which you don't hear often in Chicago. No, yeah, I don't. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> I don't remember well, that. <laughs> and Joe that's, Webb led them to victory. Okay, yeah, that's at quarterback. Uh, the the. <laughs> I wonder was that the beginning or the middle of the story of Joe Webb? <laughs> Just constantly appeared over that time frame. <laughs> <laughs> So that's enough about the 2010 Vikings. <laughs> you could convince me Joe Webb like played in 2005, and I'd be like, yeah, he was the backup for the Vikings. He came in. <laughs> he was like a receiver in college at UAB, I want to say. I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds. I think I heard that on every broadcast he ever played on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, who we got next, CJ? Looks like we have the 2011 Boston Red Sox. All right, so the 2011 Red Sox, they missed the playoffs in 2010. Answer from the front office was big moves. They traded Anthony Rizzo for Adrian Gonzalez, and they gave Carl Crawford a big, fat payday, one of the worst contracts in baseball history, but they went out, they spent big that offseason. They had a lot of talent. If you look at their lineup, they had that the Pedroia years. They ultimately had a nine-game lead in September, and they somehow managed to miss the playoffs. They were sitting in that wild-card spot. And you may remember, CJ, in 2011, that really exciting last night of the regular season that we had where there were two wild-card spots up for grabs and there were four really exciting games and the Rays ended up snagging that wild card spot the Red Sox choked and they missed the playoffs yeah looking at the the season summary their odds of reaching the postseason on September 3rd was 99.6 percent before they went on to lose 18 of the final 24 <sighs> wow yeah, that is yikes. It's insane. Yeah, but I, I remember that pitching staff that they had. I remember Josh Beckett, yeah. Daisuke, John Lester, uh, John Lackey, John Lackey. But uh, you know, I'm, now I'm looking back on some of the other ones. Rich Hill, Bobby Jenks were on that team too. <laughs> but injuries and just. Bad luck down the stretch, I guess. And 
kind of led to their demise. But ultimately for them, it's not that much of a terrible story considering that, you know, how prominent they were and how good they became a couple years later uh, with a lot of those same players. So, you know, a really disappointing year sandwiched in between, you know, uh, periods of success. Yeah, and so what ends up happening, this is a notable year because this is where Theo and Terry Francona both left the organization after that year, after that big choke. Yeah, uh, and then, of course, went on to play each other in the World Series <laughs> 26 So, I mean, and then you just look at this Red Sox roster, it's littered with, you know, future Cubs. <laughs> Uh, You know, they just all fall. I mean, you mentioned the Anthony Rizzo trade. Uh, Obviously, the trade wasn't to the Cubs at that point, but he ends up coming back or coming to the Cubs. And then you got John Lackey. You got John Lester. I mean, it's all there. It's and Theo Epstein coming to the Cubs. And then it just, you know, this team that had a, a, a large impact on the league for several years to come. Yeah, and there's a lot of talent there in addition to the names that we mentioned. Also have to mention Kevin Euclid and, of course, Big Poppy. Yeah, Dustin Pedroia. <laughs> yeah. Very talented team, and they ended up winning 90 games. So they had a, an overall good year, but still left a lot more to be desired. They're the only team to ever have a nine-game lead in September and miss the playoffs. Yeah, and so what it says here, the last day of the season, so, so first off, If you tell a team that you need to win, you know, you can lose 17 of the final 24 games and make the playoffs. (laughs) Most teams jump on that opportunity. But they they lost one extra. The last day of the season, the Red Sox lost due to a blown save against the Baltimore Orioles. And the Rays had an extra inning come from behind win against the Yankees. Oh, in that game, they were down, the Rays were down like six or seven yeah. runs. It was unbelievable. And they won on a walk-off. Uh, yeah, you, you lose a playoff spot like that, it'll stick with you for a while. Totally. So the next one I have, and this is the other team that made the finals, that maybe we make an honorable mention. Hold on, I gotta bring up one more thing here. Just yes, one. please. Andrew do. Miller was on that Red Sox team. Yes, that's jeez, uh, unreal. I'm sorry, <laughs> I saw that and I couldn't help myself. Well, there were a lot of guys who were appearing in that World Series on both sides from the Red Sox. Yeah, and then also who's uh, another pitcher on their staff? Tommy Hatavi, like. Current, yeah. current pitching coach for the Cubs. I mean, these teams yeah. just followed each other to the next spot. <laughs> <laughs> this is loyalty, at least. Yeah, I mean, and I, I guess it works. Sorry. Anyway, now we can continue. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so 2011, this is another team that is an honorable mention, probably, but I want to mention them because what they did was very disappointing. And at the time, the general public was very satisfied with this result in the NBA Finals, the 2011 Miami Heat. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it makes it was a disappointing result for them. I mean, you look back at LeBron James' finals experiences, I think that's the one that you can look back at and say that's one he should have won. Um, but also... 
Dirk Nowitzki's individual performance over the course of that entire playoff series. Just yeah. one of the most impressive individual performances I've ever seen. So it's kind of a shame that we look back at that year and think about LeBron James not playing as well in the finals instead of looking at Dirk Nowitzki's absolutely insane run to the right. finals and yeah. finals MVP. I just think when you put the target on your back and you say, not one, not two, not yeah, three. absolutely. Absolutely. No, I, it's much deserved loss. <laughs> and it's again, like it's because of that reason that we think about it as the LeBron James choke job almost because we wanted to see that happen. We, we didn't like that kind of arrogance that they went into that super team with that. They were going to run the league for a decade's worth of titles and yeah. then to see, you know, kind of the polar opposite in the Dallas Mavericks in terms of a team that, like, just was kind of putting bits and pieces together with one guy who had been loyal to the franchise his entire career. Um, you know, there's some satisfaction in that, but we never give enough credit to the fact that the guy who had been loyal to his franchise had an insane run. It was great to see Dirk win that one, but it, that was just, again, we talk about shocking results that finals was shocking yeah absolutely <laughs> so we move along to the fall of 2011 a team that i know you are very excited <laughs> to talk about cj so i'm just going to hand it over to you yeah the the dream team of the nfl <laughs> the 2011 philadelphia eagles <laughs> i mean i'll just say why i love the fact that it's the dream team the only reason they're called the dream team is because Vince Young said they were. And Vince Young <laughs> yeah. had been released by the Titans, signed by the Eagles to be a backup. And he, uh, the backup quarterback comes in and goes, we have a dream team now that I'm here. It's like, well, if, all's, if all goes perfectly this season, you never see the field. So <laughs> it's a very odd source for that statement to be coming from. <laughs> Like nobody, nobody defines their teams like their dream team by. Oh man, my dream team will have this guy as a backup quarterback. Like that's not how dream teams are made. No, <laughs> no. I mean, like, yeah. Just think about it. Like, all right, Jack, create you're the best NBA team of all time. Okay, well, I'll have John Stockton as my backup point guard. Like, okay, <laughs> it's an odd place to start. <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> so this team Michael Vick came off a year where he finished second in MVP voting behind Tom Brady he had that great year in his return to football the Eagles won the division come in 2010 Vince Young calls them the dream team and they had a very active offseason where they acquired Jason Babin Namdi Asamoah, Dominique Rogers Cromarty, who they traded Kevin Cobb for, uh, interesting trade there for the Arizona Cardinals, and Colin Jenkins, and another one, Ronnie Brown, another guy who they were really excited about adding as a backup running back. I mean, that is a nice offseason of of players to add. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's no dream team. But they finished eight and eight. So they were a game away from the playoffs, but I mean, that's still, you know, you want to make the playoffs when you're a dream team. Yes. They finished eight and eight. 
uh, which was what third in the division or second in the division? Second tied for second in the division with the Cowboys. What do you think happened with that team? Why weren't they able to follow up the season they had in 2010 and move forward? Well, I mean, you look at their schedule and it just it looks like a team that took a while to gel. Uh, they started the year one and four and then go on to finish eight and eight, winning the last four games um, of the year. It's just they you get 16 games in an NFL season. That's not a lot. You need to kind of hit the ground running. And if, and if you don't hit the ground running, you got to figure it out quickly. And a slow start out of the gate going one and four, that's just, you know, by the time you figure it out, it's not good enough. Yes. Yeah, so we keep moving the following spring. Another team wins the offseason, the 2012 Miami Marlins. This team... Well, this was when they changed their logo too, correct? They rebranded the entire team. They were formerly the Florida Marlins. They yep. moved into Marlins Park. They changed their name to Miami Marlins. They changed their colors. They changed their uniform. They changed their logo, as you mentioned, and they had a lot of pieces. Yeah, I mean, I was a fan. I I thought the rebranding was genius. Ozzie Guillen as the manager was fun. Yes, I was. Fun. I was all for this team and... I shared in their disappointment when it when <laughs> it didn't work out. So they sign Jose Reyes, Mark Burley, and Heath Bell. In addition to that, they trade for Carlos Zambrano. So really great cast of characters. If they had a hard knocks type of show for baseball, this would have been my all-time probably dream team for a reality show. I think it'd be great. <laughs> the thing is, it, they kind of put it together kind of how a casual fan would try to put a team together. Yeah, right? like a kid playing MLB The Show. Right. They, they, <laughs> that's how they think it would work, right? I, oh, I have this World Series winning manager who has a personality. I'm going to pair him up with his stable pitcher, Mark Burley. Yeah. And I'm going to give him a really good shortstop uh, in Reyes, and then I'm going to give him the personality that only he can handle <laughs> in Carlos Zambrano. <laughs> And it'll come together because I know. And then it's just like, well, it didn't come together. <laughs> it's it's how, you know, people, you hear it all the time. He's like, okay, I need to add a stabilizer. Okay, this one guy will set the tone for the team. And it's just like, well, that's it's not how teams really work. Right. You might not remember this, CJ, but they were also in the bidding war for Albert Pujols at the time. I'm sure they're glad that they missed out on that one. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I don't know. Would have been for our sake more fun, right? I'm I'm upset that they missed out on the bidding war for Albert Pujols. Yes, yeah. I would have loved Albert Pujols to come on in there, and then we could have had two stabilizers: Mark Burley, <laughs> Albert Pujols, and then it would have worked. All right, <laughs> the stabilizer just can't be a pitcher. <laughs> Hanley Ramirez was still there. Chris Coughlin had won. Rookie of the Year a couple years before that. There was talent here. They, I think in 09, they won 87 games. They regressed a little bit in 2010. They were right around 500. But I don't think anyone was prepared for this team to win just 69 games. Yeah, no, I absolutely. I mean, you look at their roster. It has, it has good players on it. I mean, the Carlos Zambrano not having a good year was obviously the big 
hurt for them. Mark Burley having a you know substandard year, another one. You know, you bring in guys like that because you want them. You know, jokes aside, you do want them to be the anchor. You do want them at least when things go wrong that we can look forward to their spot in the rotation and kind of get things back on track. Um, but they didn't get that from them. And maybe we're just, you know, on some of these other players a couple of years early. Do you know the story with Mark Burley and what happened with him? Once you say it, I'm going to remember, but <laughs> not off the top of my head. <laughs> so he gets traded after that year to the Toronto Blue Jays. And this is one of the all-time sad trade stories, but also one of the things where sometimes you hear trade rumors a lot of time where they say, oh, maybe maybe the Royals want to trade Whit Merrifield. And it's like, well, Whit Merrifield just signed an extension with the team. Why would, why would they trade him? And why would they want to create some distrust there with players when they sign a guy long-term? The Mark Burley case is the all-time horror story of a guy just getting traded after he commits to a place long term after just one year he's traded to the Blue Jays and he's not allowed to bring his dog with him into Canada yeah I do remember this now yeah that yep I remember that horrible (laughs) yeah that's ugh. yeah I don't know but that's that's business I guess That's, that's the way it works yeah, um, but that really—I mean, you yeah, don't that's wanna, a tough one to take. You don't want to go and sign with the Marlins after that happens. You hear about that, right? It's, but there are some success stories when you do that, though. I mean, True. look at the Clipper. The, look at the Clippers right now. Yes, right. They committed long term to Blake Griffin, and then made the smart decision to trade him after committing long term to him and traded him to Detroit. Yeah, you know, like that's. It's no way you treat the player who brought your team to relevance. But now they have a title contending team. Absolutely. But unfortunately, it hasn't worked out that way for the Marlins yet. But maybe no. maybe they have a nice like 10-year plan here with this. And in a couple years, it'll all come to fruition. If it comes to fruition, it's not because of a 10-year plan. <laughs> It's just by chance. (laughs) I will say that they appropriately dealt Stanton and got rid of that contract after making the mistake of locking him up for 13 years or whatever that one was. Yeah, but then, you know, they they made the trade of Yelich. Yes. So, (laughs) you know, I don't really have faith in their processes right now. So they ended up finishing in dead last of the NL East that year, and Ozzy got fired after just one season. There were some other reasons why he got fired, but we won't go into those details today. I, I think he had some really entertaining press conferences that year. He if was I, great. Yeah, I think he had some, you know, calling out the players type press conferences that everybody loves to hear, but definitely have problems within the locker room when he returns. <laughs> He also got into it. You might not. Uh, do you remember when he was mixing it up with Bryce Harper when Bryce Harper was a rookie? I remember the the back and forth. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> and he is just an all time in terms of personality, just one of the best characters the game has ever seen. Yeah, and he's immortalized by a single World Series win now. So, 
like you know he'll always be regarded that's what he'll always be known for yeah the personality who won the championship yep definitely so in the fall of 2012 this is our second college football second of two college football teams that made the list 2012 USC Trojans had nine returning starters on offense, seven on defense. They were led by Heisman favorite Matt Barkley. They were the preseason number one in the AP poll. Some, again, this is probably a product of everyone having to have a hot take and wanting to get out there first with their fun take, but there were articles being written that this could be the best team of all time. It was the first season under Lane Kiffin where USC was once again postseason eligible following the sanctions that were handed to them for the Pete Carroll years. And they ended up starting out again, starting out the season as number one, the favorites to win the national championship. They went seven and six, just five and four in the Pac-12 that year. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those cases where you look back and you wonder why there was hype, why it was that much hype. Yes, them, right. Like they were deserving of consideration. They definitely were not a team to be overlooked in the preseason. There was every reason to think that they could be in the mix. But I mean, best team of all time. You know, a for sure thing in the national championship game. Like, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. but you look back at like, how do you come up with those based on what they had? Well, they did go 10-2 and two the year before that, finished 2011 as number six in the AP poll. So there was reason to think with Matt Barkley coming back for his senior year, who Matt Barkley was starting for four years and, Really, I think Matt Barkley really disappointed a lot that year. I think you looked at him, a lot of people looked at him as the next great USC quarterback, and for all accounts and purposes, you would say he had a really good career, but this was a guy that, when he came in, you thought was going to be like Carson Palmer or Matt Leinart, who would be a top 10 pick in the NFL draft. Yeah, uh, that's a that's kind of an unrelated bone to pick. But uh, this kind of lore and history around the great USC quarterbacks, <laughs> like, am I missing something or have they just like not been that great? Like, you know, Matt Leinart, I think, probably had a better career overall than Carson Palmer. Carson Palmer had one really good year that he won the Heisman. Um, other, but I mean, like, who else am I missing in there? Mark Sanchez had a good career at USC. Yeah, but again, he was propped up because he was the next USC quarterback. He was right. never like phenomenal. He was a solid quarterback. Yes. But I mean, like, who else in USC history am I missing there that like they developed this quarterback lore? John David Booty. <laughs> See, like, what? Look what we've resorted to already. <laughs> And again, he was propped up because he went to USC and they yes. have to have good quarterbacks. Yeah. <laughs> like, wh- why? Yeah. And I that's mean, a, that's a great point. And is there like a track record of USC quarterback success? I would probably say Carson Palmer's the most successful USC quarterback in the NFL ever. And he's, you know, had a good career, but maybe not even a Hall of Fame career. No, definitely not a Hall of Fame career. Yeah. So, I mean, again, am I missing something here? 
let's let's look best USC quarterbacks of all time. Let's see if there's a guy that we are forgetting. Yeah. Okay. Let's do Rodney it. Rodney Pete. Rodney Pete had a great college career. He won a Heisman. Okay. Let's see. Todd Marinovich. Yeah. Rob Johnson. Yeah. There's some good guys. So they've had history, but recently, I mean, that's all evaporated. USC is not, they haven't been relevant in years. This was probably the most relevant team that they've had over the last 10 years, and it totally flopped. Yeah, no, absolutely. I just, and it makes sense. Oh, Matt Castle. I think he was. Oh yeah, but he didn't. Did he ever play? No, he was I, th- sitting I think behind he was Carson, Liner. Yeah, I think he was one of their backups. So yeah, he was sitting behind Liner, and he still got drafted, and he had a better NFL career than Matt Liner. <laughs> yeah, Matt Liner's NFL career came crashing after the we. They are who we thought they were game. <laughs> yes, that was his chance. So I was thinking about <laughs> Matt Liner the other day, CJ. Were you as disappointed if you were to look at careers were you as disappointed with Matt Leinart as I was because I thought I had every reason to think that he was going to be at least a good NFL quarterback yeah um I mean I was never super high on him I was more disappointed with Reggie Bush's career um which by the way I think if Reggie Bush plays like comes out of college now the NFL does oh. a, the NFL does a better job of utilizing him. Yeah, he'd be like Christian McCaffrey, maybe. Right. Um, and but I think then uh, at the the way the NFL offenses worked was just not as fast and you know side to side as they are now, or even make as much use of a you know running back out receiving out of the backfield. Um, but yeah, Matt Liner. Yeah, I thought he would be a solid quarterback. I don't know if I ever thought he was going to be a superstar. Um, But yeah, I mean, nonetheless, a very disappointing career. Yeah. But we move on to the last college team on our list, the 2012 to 2013 Kentucky Wildcats men's basketball. Yeah. That's just another college team that when things went south, they, they went very south. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So that 2013 team coming off a national championship. Now they did have several new guys in the mix, but they had three five-star recruits who came in that year. Alex Poitras, who would end up becoming a, a pivotal player on the team that a couple years later would start out undefeated and lose in the final four to Wisconsin. And they had those teams for a couple years. The next couple years after this one, they sort of laid the groundwork there for mm-hmm. those teams. But Nerlens Noel and Archie Goodwin, so they had three five-star recruits that came in, and their one four-star was Willie Cauley-Stein, who maybe had a better college career than any of them. And they started out the season, preseason number three, both the AP and coaches poll, and they ended up not really having a bad record by any stretch of the imagination. They went 21 and 11, but they did not make the NCAA tournament. Yeah. Um, I mean, we were talking about their schedule earlier. I mean, they just, if this team plays now, I think they're in March madness. I think they make the tournament. Um, yeah. but you know, I, there's no wins that pop off 
their schedule that are strong wins. I think that they were kind of hurt by a weak SEC. Uh, yeah, SEC that year. is much. SEC is much better now, seven right. years later. So I definitely they'd be in for that reason alone. Yeah. And so, like you know, they did good against SEC teams, but those wins don't jump off the page. Um, and then you know we talked about it earlier. These teams, you know, some of these losses are justifiable. All of them aren't. You got to come away with some wins here. And then they finished the season really weak, which probably left a really sour taste in the committee's mouth there. I mean, like a loss to a 13 point loss to Arkansas, a a 10 point loss to Georgia, both unranked, and then a 16 point loss in the SEC tournament to Vanderbilt in the first round. Like, you know, you go, you lose three of those, your last four games, and those are the three you lose. Yeah. Yeah, the the select the committee will probably not look as favorably favorably upon you. Yeah, it leaves a bad taste in their mouth. So they ended up going to the NIT that year. They were a number one seed in the NIT, and they lost to Robert Morris. Yeah, that's see, and again, like I don't know how much we can read into that. That's a really embarrassing way to end the year, and like shame on them for not showing up better, and kind of you know trying to finish the season on a high note. But when you come into a season and you want to be national champions and, you know, towards the end of the year, you're on the on the cusp of being selected for March Madness and then you don't. I mean, that's just such a low, low so fast that I don't know. It's almost excusable that they didn't show up. Yeah, I I hear you, CJ. So they did. There were good positives for them because in the next two years they were unbelievably dominant they were so unbelievable in 2015 but really they haven't done too much in the tournament since then now again i did not include any teams on this list where you look at a team for instance virginia from two years ago where they had an amazing regular season they lost in the tournament sure that was disappointing but I mean that I th- I think that falls into a different type of category because <laughs> yeah. that happens every year in college right. hoops. If you're gonna do that for every March Madness loss that you know is a bad ending, you're gonna have an every single year you're gonna have two teams at least yes that are deemed disappointing teams. But that happens. And another loss here for Kentucky that I didn't mention was a 30 point loss at Tennessee. You know, towards oh the end of gosh. the season, which. Yeah, you know, you got to be closer. You, you, when you lose these games, you have to be at least competitive. And they just were getting crushed. Yeah, that that's unbelievable. I I don't remember that game. That's crazy. Yeah, I. Uh, it's just, I mean, then they lost a 17-point game to number seven Florida. Doesn't looks like they only had one ranked win that entire year. So, yeah, that'll that'll do it for you to not make <laughs> yeah. the tournament. Well, I would say good job by the committee because nowadays I, I think they would get in. Yes, again based for on the star idea. power. Yes, and the, I I like in the past when they've when they didn't put in teams that underachieved because of all the money that it would make by putting them in, who should be there fair and square. But obviously it's a 68-team tournament, so it's not going to be perfect. 
So I would say, though, good job on the committee's part in that season. Yeah, I mean, we've seen them recently not hold true to that when Trey Young's team got in. I mean, they yeah. just, shouldn't, just shouldn't have been in the tournament. They had no business being in the tournament. Totally. Totally should not have been. We have a few teams left on this list. Really, one of the big ones that came to mind when I started making this list, the I'd say the two that jumped off when I was just thinking about this were 2011 Eagles and 2012 to 2013 Los Angeles Lakers. Yeah, that's like the most prominent recent NBA, just absolute disappointment. It was unbelievable. I mean, I remember thinking that year, the Heat had this dominant couple of years and they they had just won a title. And once again, they were favorites in the East, but these guys were favorites in the West. And it seemed if this group, Steve Nash, Metal World Peace, Kobe, Pau Gasol, and Dwight Howard as your five, all those guys in their prime, that's a Hall of Fame team. Right. <laughs> I mean, like that's, that's an unbelievable starting five. They were pretty much everyone's favorites in the West. Yeah. And I mean, again, looking back on it, the only guy that was even in, I mean, Kobe Bryant wasn't in his prime by any means, but he was resembled at least like some portion of his prime. I mean, he was probably first team all NBA that year would be my guess. Probably. I mean, like the, I mean, he was, he performed the best on that team. Steve Nash in hindsight was way over the hill. Pau Gasol was still an all-star and Dwight Howard should have been really good. And one thing that one question around the season that we'll never really fully have answered is how bad of an injury did Dwight Howard have to his back? You know, I think he had an injury with the the year before um, that, you know, people said he's over it. He's, he's recovered. It's fully, but some of those back injuries, they linger for a while. And, you know, we've never seen Dwight Howard be as good as he was with the Magic. And so you have to at least put a question mark on did he ever recover from the back injury? Yeah, that's a great point. So they ended up going seventh in the conference, making the playoffs, which this is the only team on this list that wasn't an honorable mention that actually made the playoffs. They Part of it, they did get swept out of the first round of the playoffs, Kobe suffered an Achilles injury. He ruptured his Achilles, but that was at the very end of the season. I mean, that was almost, I want to say that was in April or so. Yeah, he was, it was later in the year. I mean, I remember he was willing them to the playoffs. Yeah. Uh, he had a lot of really impressive performances down the stretch to, to get them there. Um, but, I mean, you look at their their entire season story. I think at the end of the year, I think I think it was Bill Simmons wrote an article about how the NBA almost seemed to be rigging it in favor of the Lakers <laughs> with the amount of free throws that they were being given and all this other stuff. I mean, and it was all, it was kind of compelling. It was like, well, yeah, of course the NBA wants this super team in the playoffs. Um, but, I mean, you look at the way it started. Mike Brown was the head coach. Tried to put in the Princeton offense. Didn't work. Uh, they went 0-8 in the preseason, 1-4 to start the regular season. And I remember I, I, I remember there was one game. I don't remember against who. I know it was against Eddie Curry. So whichever team. <laughs> he was on the Wizards at that okay. point. So it was against, I was thinking about that. Against too. the Wizards, I remember it was an early season game, somewhere within those first five games. 
I was one of the guys who was big on this bandwagon. I thought the Lakers were going to be phenomenal. I thought Powell and Dwight Howard would do a good job of playing off each other, you know, high-low post. Um, but at after the third quarter of one of the games, they were interviewing, they were doing a sideline co- interview with the coach. And they asked Mike Brown, what do you do here? And they were losing to the Wizards. And he said, we have to find an answer for Eddie Curry. And that's when I was like, this team's <laughs> not going anywhere. You have Dwight Howard, you have Pau Gasol, and you're sitting here going, we have to find an answer for Eddie Curry. It's like, well, I mean, anybody on your roster should be the answer to Eddie Curry. (laughs) You should not have to search for this, especially if you have two all-star big men. And uh, so that's when I wrote them off, and they deservedly so. And then they they went with the Mike D'Antoni route, and he tried to implement his offense, which, I mean, it just... They took a guy who was like had a, a philosophy of basketball where he needs to have some control over the roster that's put together, uh, and they thought they could just plug him in and play. He ended up trying to run a hybrid system of his offense, and he can't do that. It, it's just it's just not the Mike D'Antoni system was never going to work with a Kobe Bryant team. First off, it was never going to work with a Kobe Bryant Dwight Howard team. Second, it was never going to work with a Kobe Bryant Dwight Howard Pau Gasol team. <laughs> like yeah. those guys are just so antithetical to his they're just so anti Mike D'Antoni system but they went the Mike D'Antoni route and made the playoffs and it ended in a really really ugly fashion I don't know if you remember JJ Barea uh, driving to the to the basket um, oh no I think I'm confusing the years I'm a year late I was oh, remembering okay. the JJ Barea driving to the basket and Andrew Bynum Delivering a huge elbow to his chest. Oh yes, that was the year before. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But I remember the against the. I forget who did they play. Who did they play in the playoffs? The Spurs. Yeah, that spells sweep for you. So I think that's. Yep. They got swept <laughs> two years in a row. <laughs> yes. So and the the other thing they. I have on here that they started out the season 15 and 21, which was their worst start since 1994. Yeah, that's just. And you would look at some of those teams over the years, particularly maybe those 2005, 2006 teams post Shaq with Smush Parker being your next best player and all that. And they were still, I mean, you, you would think that this team with their roster would be at least outperforming some of those teams, but apparently not. Yeah, and I'm looking back at this history. They were, after they fired Mike Brown, they talked to Phil Jackson first, but Phil Jackson requested two days to consider the opening and believed that the Lakers would wait for his response. The Lakers thought that it was understood that they could continue their search, and the next day agreed with Mike D'Antoni uh, in a unanimous decision by the front office to a multi-year contract. Yeah. What? What are you guys doing? Yeah. Like, just, right? they felt that D'Antoni's fast-paced style of play made him a great fit for the team. <laughs> just uh, what are yeah, you? Yeah, Phil. Uh, Phil wanted to do it. Yeah, and I, and I think that's a huge what if in sports history now. Is what if yes. Phil Jackson came back? I mean, probably. CJ, that's a that's a great teaser. That's one of the podcast episodes that I would like to do during this quarantine period. Is the greatest what ifs in sports? 
Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I don't think that might be an honorable mention. What if? Because I think that team might have just been destined to fail. Just yeah. conflicting personalities. Dwight Howard and Kobe Bryant were never going to get along. Um, but you know, maybe, maybe the Zen Master had something left in him to figure it out. But I don't know. I'm skeptical. <laughs> So we got a few more here. At least I have a few more on mine, and then I'm sure CJ has a couple that he'd like to toss in there. The next one, 2015 Washington Nationals. Max Scherzer was a free agent. He signs a big contract a little late. I think he signed in late January, I want to say, with the Nationals, who already had a great pitching rotation with Steven Strasburg, Jordan Zimmerman, Gio Gonzalez, and Doug Fister, just a really outstanding pitching staff. There was so much hype on them. They were, I I don't want to call them cocky, but it seemed like they had confidence in some of their quotes about their pitching staff early in the season. They were coming off a division title, and this club only went 83-79. and Yeah, I mean, it's... Being an overhyped team in the MLB is always a tough one to yeah. tough thing to do. I mean, just because baseball is such a different sport almost yes. uh, than anything else, it's really hard to just put together like the best players in the league and then have it work. It just doesn't work that way. And, obvi- and there are obviously still people trying to figure out exactly how baseball does work and yeah. what combination of players make it work. Um, but like, I guess it wasn't this one. <laughs> well, this we got to say, this was such an interesting year because Bryce Harper not only had an amazing year and won MVP, but he became the first MVP to ever be put in a chokehold by one of his teammates. Yeah, and and who was right in that scenario? I want to ask you, who was in the right? <laughs> well, take me back. What exactly, how does this whole thing happen? Papel Bond's upset. He puts him in a chokehold. Do you know why? I think it was something about Bryce Harper not hustling out a fly ball or something like that. I think it was more about his attitude. Yeah, I mean, it probably like was boiled over it, from yeah, other stuff. It was definitely the attitude that was the core issue. Yeah. And then like one, you know, not running out a ball or whatever then causes you to blow up. Um, but I think specifically it was a yeah, I think a hustle issue, which, you know, of course would bother a guy like Jonathan Papabon, who was always a little bit off. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say, how could you be upset with an MVP for hustling? I mean, he batted like 320, 330 that year with 40 homers and I'm sure at least 100 RBIs. He was unbelievable that year. How can you be upset with him for his output? Yeah, let's hold on. Wait a minute. MLB, I'm looking it up real quick. Huffington Post headline. MLB players say Jonathan Papelbon was right to attack <laughs> Bryce Harper. Quote, it needed to be done, one MLB <laughs> player said. <laughs> oh my so the gosh. scuffle happened in the eighth inning of a 12-5 loss against the Phillies. Papelbon took issue with Harper after the MVP candidate's failure to run out a fly ball. Yeah, a lack of hustle play. 
He accosted Harper as he returned to the dugout, where the incident then turned physical. <laughs> they had been teammates for less than two months at the time this occurred. Can you imagine that happening in 2020? I know it was only five years ago. I know Manfred was the commissioner at that point, too. That was his first year. But the whole brand of let the kids play and everything that the MLB is pushing, just how horribly like that would have worked against everything that the league has been promoting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just... I don't know. I'm looking back at the video now. Jonathan Papbon kind of got a sucker punch on him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I remember they were really excited when they had Papelbon too. Yeah, following an initial report, former MLB pitcher Latroy Hawkins publicly supported Jonathan Papelbon. <laughs> Latroy Hawkins. Latroy Hawkins. Oh my gosh. He finally retired a couple years ago. Yeah, I. I good for him. He had a great career. Yeah. Cubs used him inappropriately. Yeah. <laughs> he was never a closer. He was a setup man. But, hey, you know, I will, I'll always have memories of him blowing saves. <laughs> so the Nationals did not win the division that year. That was really a very strange year in the National League, especially with the Mets and the Cubs in the NLCS. Yeah, that was that is a very bizarre year. I'm looking through the roster now. Uh, or looking through the roster that they had then. I mean, there's some core players here to, you know, their World Series team now. I mean, obviously the Scherzer acquisition ended up paying off, although yeah. not immediately. Now it has. That's The Scherzer contract has to be the best of those big contracts, at least in baseball. Yeah. I mean, just in terms of the return on it. Yeah. And the guy who consistently is performing. Yeah, I mean, you have Anthony Rendon still on the roster, Zimmerman. It's kind of hard to say that like this was the beginning of that team, but it kind of was. Yeah, I mean, it was a transitional time because right. Jason Worth was still there and Danny Espinosa and some other guys. Right, so, you know, oh, Reed Johnson on the squad. Yes. Of <laughs> Great. Just what I wanted to say. <laughs> I think it's time to move on to the other 2015 it, yeah, time. Now that I, I resorted to Reed Johnson, let's move on. <laughs> 2015 San Diego Padres. Do you remember the offseason the Padres had that year, CJ? Remind me. All right. So <laughs> they went out and they made a lot of big moves. And there was a lot of hype on them. And I personally... Did not have them as a playoff team, but I know a lot of people did because here are some names that they added at the time. And at the time, some of these names were names to actually be excited about because you look at the names now and you think, oh, gosh, I'll let you react to these names one by one. The first okay. one, Matt Kemp. Okay. Eh. Justin. Shrug. Oh, sorry. No, I just said shrug. <laughs> Justin Upton. Somebody who I've always been way too high on. <laughs> well, I mean, everyone was really high on at one point. He was the number one overall pick in the 2005 MLB draft. Yeah, but I stayed on that bandwagon. <laughs> I, was, I was holding it down. His brother, BJ Upton. Okay. Hey, yeah, you know, like the Ashley and Sidney Weber, you know, they play better on, when they're together. <laughs> It's a three. It's a three baseball stat boost. <laughs> Isn't 
the Morris twins? Is that the opposite? Is that like the Del Vecchios? Yeah, that's where they don't like each other. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so they, they traded for Justin Upton. They traded for Matt Kemp. They also traded for Will Myers. Okay, that's okay. He, he, he made an all-star team, at least one with the team. Uh, they <laughs> traded for BJ Upton and Craig Kimbrell in the same trade. Okay. Okay. I mean, these are, you know. No, these are all, at the time, yeah. you look at all these guys, you're like, oh my gosh, that's a lot of talent. Yeah. And then, I, of course, they paid big money that offseason for James Shields. Yeah, that's maybe, that's that's one that they're regretting. <laughs> well, I don't think they regret it because a year later, they end up just dumping that contract on the White Sox for Fernando Tatis Jr. <laughs> so this Padre somehow won that free agent signing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. I mean, good for them, but wow. <laughs> How many times? Okay. James Shields. This, I mean, so much talent. You look at that outfield. Myers, Kemp, and Upton. And Kemp was an MVP candidate just a couple years before. Upton was two. And Kimbrell was the best closer in baseball at the time. B.J. Upton, nice player. James Shields pitched some big games down the stretch the previous year uh, for the Dodgers, I want to say. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, a nice little Andrew Kashner. Yeah. Who? Andrew Kashner, of course. He was <laughs> he was expected to be, I think he was their opening day starter that year. Yeah, who, by the way, I have to come clean. When the Cubs traded him for Anthony Rizzo, I was I was very opposed. Oh, really? I did not like that trade. <laughs> I was not a fan. I was a big Andrew Kashner guy. I was like, man, you got a big guy throwing heat up there. You got to lock that down. <laughs> so I was wrong. I was wrong. <laughs> I goofed up. James Shields was on the Royals uh, in 2014. I remember him getting going. He started with the Rays, and he ended up in blue. I don't know why I said Dodgers. Uh, maybe I was thinking Scott Casimir went over the Dodgers, who also came from the Rays. But anyway, he was amazing for the Royals down the stretch that year. They were calling him Big Game James. Yeah, I mean, he was, and I, you know, he had a string of solid games there, I think, with the Rays, too. Yeah. I mean, he was, yep. in the market, they always, like, kind of boost up guys with playoff experience. Um past points where maybe they should be but and he was one of those guys that performed really well and you know high profile moments yep so the Padres end up going 74 and 88 Bud Black got fired yeah that'll get you fired if there's <laughs> any you know a lot of these teams that were overhyped end up having their coaches either fired midseason or end of season yeah, and I mean, a lot of the time, it seems every year there's a team where you look at, oh my gosh, they have this huge offseason, and they're a preseason favorite in some respect, and they end up flopping to some degree. Yeah, and so I wonder, sometimes I wonder, and we can kind of talk about this a little bit at the end, is, you know, these hype jobs on these teams, does it cause there to be less patience with from the front office? Like, mm. some of these teams... Like, if they had waited another year, would they have figured it out? Would the head coach have gotten it together? Did they pull the cord too quickly? 
I, I think for you know some of the teams, I do wonder. I mean, obviously on the 2012-2013 Lakers, Ron Artest, Meta World Peace, he said, "Let us run it back one more time." Uh, now I think he was blatantly wrong, but <laughs> <laughs> but like I think there's a sen- there's a sentiment there that like you know you kind of wonder sometimes like. Maybe they needed another year to figure it out. Yeah, definitely. I got a couple interesting notes here in terms of really mention they end up getting a nice haul back for James Shields. The Kimbrell and Myers trades and BJ Upton, they didn't really, you look at the players and not really any of those guys that they traded panned out. So those weren't horrible moves, but a couple of them do not look great in retrospect. They traded Yasmani Grandal for Matt Kemp. Okay. Not a good trade. Yeah. The other one, they ended up trading Max Freed for Justin Upton. Yeah. Okay. Again, hindsight 2020, though. Like, at the time, it's hard to see that coming. (laughs) No, of course. Of course not. Yeah. So, I don't know. But that's, I've got conflicted feelings about this team. Do I really disagree with the moves they made? Do I think they were wrong? No. Do I think another general manager wouldn't have done the same things if given those opportunities on the table? Like, you know, I I think almost all of them would. Right. I agree with you. Yeah. So, all right, moving on. Yes. So the last team on my list is also a baseball team, the 2016 Pittsburgh Pirates. Yeah, and we were talking about this earlier um it was just how maybe that individual team wasn't disappointing on its own but the fact that the pirates were consistently one of the top teams in baseball for that span of years and just always kept getting booted out on that wild card game yeah it's just a one of those things where you look at the the current playoff system and say, well, that team should have gotten at least one series um, to see if they were to see what they were. Well, they got a series in thirteen against the Cardinals, right? And then what was it? Fourteen, fifteen, sixteen that they got booted three years in a row. Uh, fourteen and fifteen they got booted, and then sixteen. Sixteen they, they just collapsed, flopped. Yeah. yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah. So the sixteen team correction then. Sixteen team was disappointing the three-year span before that disappointing as a whole. Right. I'll, I'll tell you why I have this team on my list, 2016 in particular, because we'll talk, let's talk about 2015 Pirates here for a second. Yeah. So 2015 Pirates won the most games that they had in at least 25 years. It was the best team they had. They won 98 games, just two behind the division champion St. Louis Cardinals, those three teams, Cardinals, Pirates, Cubs, really, I mean, 198, 97 wins, that's a really tough three-division race. Yeah, absolutely. Three-team race, I should say, in one division. Right. I genuinely believed that the Pirates that year were going to play in the World Series had they not played in the wild card game. And also... These were the three best records in the National League, too. Mm -hmm. I truly thought the way the Pirates were constructed, I thought they had the most complete team in the National League. I thought they were going to go to the World Series, and they ended up running into Arietta 
Just the buzzsaw. Yeah, historic stretch that guy was on. He was unbelievable. Yeah, and I remember from that game, uh, you know, obviously Arietta dominating, but I also remember him getting hit by a pitch and yep. then in the most kind of showing who's boss moment on the next pitch, <laughs> stealing second. You know, <laughs> yeah. it was clear the Pirates threw at him to kind of kind of psych themselves up a little bit, kind of try to take Arietta off his game. Yeah. Just a, a desperation moment of we have no more tricks in the bag. We're going to try this. It was and, Clint Hurdle. He's an old school guy. Right. And it just backfired completely. The, the Cubs seemed more locked in after it happened. Arietta stole second to kind of show them, you know, just the, the mind game that was being played there that the Cubs came away with just the resounding W. Yeah. It was just a, you know, one of, one of a, the cool baseball moments. Totally. The game within the game. Let's say the Pirates played the Cubs in a five-game series or a seven-game series that year. I think the Pirates win that series. Yeah, I mean, I don't... I, it's hard to disagree with you. It's hard to say that you're wrong. I mean, to say that if they could have gotten... Another pitcher other than Jake Arrieta. I think you're definitely looking at a, a neck-and-neck series. Yeah. I mean, because that, that pitching rotation on the Cubs is Lester and Hendricks, but after that, you got Dan Heron. You've got, uh, there's another guy I'm blanking on, <laughs> Jason <Right>. Hamill. <laughs> but also, you know, like, Arietta kind of ran out of gas at the end. Yes. A lot of, a lot of. if the Pirates had faced him later, and who knows, I mean, they could have pulled off a win against a lesser or a Hendricks, you know, like I, I definitely see where you're coming from that that team in a playoff series is much more dangerous than any individual game. Yeah. And again, you look at the National League that year. It was such a weird year. The Mets are playing in the World Series Were the Mets, this amazing dominant team. I don't think so. Right. Yeah. And that's why the, the wild card game, I think, is gets a lot of criticism. Is, yeah. Is that. You know, some teams are constructed for that for one single games, right? There are some teams that as a whole may not be that solid, but they have a, a stud pitcher. And if they can find their way into that wild card game, you know, and you have your guy on the mound, you can beat a team that's better than you. Yeah, it kind of it rewards that style. Exactly. Totally. Hey, you know who was on that 2015 Pirates team? Oh, no. Who? Aramis Ramirez. Of course, because he, Aramis Ramirez and Randall Simon always have a special place in my, uh, Randall Simon, so Aramis Ramirez and Randall Simon came from the Pirates in 2003, correct? And yeah. I think, and the, Kenny Lofton. Right, and the following year, I think Randall Simon went right back to the Pirates. I'm not sure. I gotta look it up. I think right, well, Randall Simon like <laughs> was a second half of the season rental who ended up going right back. I'll, I'll think. Yeah, there he goes. He went back. 2003 <laughs> with the Pirates. 2003 the Cubs. 2004 the Pirates. <laughs> yep. Okay. So. Okay. So the 2015 team. It had a lot of veterans. It was Josh Harrison. You had Andrew McCutcheon, Starling Marte, and Gregory Polanco were a couple of the younger guys. Neil Walker, Jordy Mercer, Jung Ho Kong was one of the best rookies that year until Chris Coughlin 
messed up his leg on that takeout slide, which played a, a factor in changing that rule after the Chase Utley slide as well. There was a lot of talent. Francisco Cervelli, what I don't think anyone was expecting. They go from 98 wins to the next year, 78 wins. They're 20 wins worse somehow. That was really shocking to me. I I truly thought in 15 they were going to go to the World Series, and in 16, although the Cubs were building this juggernaut, I thought the Pirates wouldn't be too far behind the Cubs that year. In fact, I also thought the Cubs, with the target and the pressure and everything, that the Pirates had an opportunity to rise up and steal that division. Yeah. Ultimately, I think what happened was there are three consecutive first-round disappointments and two consecutive one-game losses in the playoffs. I think that just weighed on them. I think that just took a lot of gas out of them. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to come back from a heartbreaking series of defeats like that. I think you see it go both ways. I think sometimes you see really heartbreaking losses. They come back much, much stronger the next year. Um, like I think you can point to the San Antonio Spurs when they lost to the heat in that really heartbreaking fashion. The next year they came back, they were on a mission. I think you can point to the 2016 Cubs, you know, getting swept in the NLCS coming back the next year on a mission. I think the Pirates went the other way in 2016. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. The Pirates, it just, and what really ends up happening is the end of the era just like that. No one was expecting it to end that abruptly. Right, and now now they're in this kind of odd phase where, you know, what do they do? (laughs) Yeah. They got they got a rebuild ahead of them. They they do have some pitchers that I like at the moment, uh, but I'll talk more about that when I eventually preview the NL Central if we get a baseball season on our hands this year. Right. I think we will. Probably at least shortened. Yeah, exactly. So look forward to that. But this Pirates team, I mean, you just couldn't. I couldn't believe that. That was it. It was over just like that. The window was over. And as we mentioned, they're rebuilding now. Yeah. And that's the list. Yeah. Uh, one thing real quick I would like to say about yes. the shortened or possibly shortened MLB season. Okay. Um, I'm interested to see how this new fad of bullpenning kind of clashes with the old school starters kind of running things in a shortened MLB season because in a shortened MLB season you don't have to worry about your star pitcher running out of gas at the end of the year you don't have to worry about pitch count limits and inning limited I mean to a certain extent you do but not nearly as much uh if you then if you had a 162 game season if this season is shortened and you're only you're playing you know significantly fewer games I think you'll see a lot of teams go, you know, I'll just throw my starter out there and hope I get seven innings out of him every time and then go to my setup and closer because, you know, I'm not going to wear him down as much. So that's one note on the shortened MLB season I want to keep an eye on. Yeah, totally. And it'll be interesting because there'll be some managers that might be so stubborn in their ways of wanting to always maximize on their bullpen. They might be refusing to allow their starters to go deep into games. Right, and some teams are just built that way to have the bullpen 
carried him. They, and they might not they might not have a choice but to continue on with. Him. Yeah. It'll be interesting to watch. That's a that's a great note and it's something to look forward to. CJ, who is left that we didn't talk about that you would like to talk about? So a couple teams. First I'll start off with teams that aren't really worthy of a lot of discussion. They're kind of straightforward. <laughs> on the disappointment last year's Boston Celtics team. Yeah. I think was it's, it's own kind of disappointment, you know, have real, a lot of success the previous year, bring in a point guard, Kyrie, Kyrie Irving, who you think is going to lead you to that next step and chemistry issues just cause it to collapse. I don't think there's any other analysis you can give other than chemistry issues, causing it to collapse. Um, Another team that I think is worth honorable mention is the Tom Thibodeau Timberwolves kind of, you know, running it back with the old Bulls players. Yeah. You know, the Derrick Rose. And I think he had Luol Deng on the team at some point, too. <laughs> I mean, Taj Gibson just trying to. Jimmy Butler. Yeah. Just trying to find that, reignite the old flame. And it just didn't work. And I, and I think there was a tweet earlier, I forget by who about looking back at the old Eastern Conference box score from the Heat Bulls series back when uh, Derrick Rose was an MVP and just looking at how mismanaged that lineup was. Uh, Ronnie Brewer was like the only other Bull other than Derrick Rose to hit a three-pointer in the fourth quarter of any game of that series, which is just, I mean, you have Kyle Korver there. You're just you're just yeah. terribly misusing your roster if Derrick Rose has no one else to dump it off to it on the perimeter than Ronnie Brewer. Um, so I, I think the Celtics team and the T- Timberwolves don't really deserve a whole lot of discussion. Um, so then I have two other NBA teams. This one is not as bad of a disappointment as the second one I'll get to, but the Los Angeles Clippers lob city when they yes. brought in, you know, they had Blake Griffin, Deandre Jordan brought in Chris Paul uh, had Vinny Del Negro and Lob City was the title given because of all the alley-oops being thrown to DeAndre Jordan and Blake Griffin. <laughs> and then the next year, I think I think they lost in the Eastern or in the Western Conference semifinal. And then the next year they got Doc Rivers to be the head coach after he left the Celtics. And everybody thought, oh, now he'll be provide them with legitimacy. He'll give them a real NBA offense that Vinny Del Negro never gave them. And he only got as far as Vinny Del Negro. That's, that's <laughs> one thing I think I like Doc Rivers as a coach, but I think sometimes he's, he as a coach is overhyped because with that, essentially the same roster and then with some improvements, he only did as well as Vinny Del Negro in Los Angeles, at least up till now. I feel like at this point, Doc Rivers is almost underrated because for the last five years, you've just heard Doc Rivers is overrated all the time. Yeah, maybe. I think you might be right on that. But, you know, I'm just saying if if you have the same amount of success as Vinny Del Negro, you know, yeah. maybe maybe there's, maybe there's a little hype behind you. Yeah. And then the last team that I have is the other NBA super team that should have been or that they thought was going to be. Are you going to mention the Clippers with Baron Davis and Chris Kamen? No, I was not going to mention that Clippers team. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, I figured. 
Yeah, no, that, that they, team was not a disappointment. They said, Elton Brand, please come back and re-sign and we can be the big three. Um, I didn't, okay. <laughs> <laughs> what a terrible sales pitch. <laughs> got Baron Davis and Chris Kamen. <laughs> anyway, the last team that I think is worthy of mention on an overhyped, disappointing team is the Brooklyn Nets when they made that trade mm. with... Uh, the Boston Celtics to bring over Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce teamed them up with Brooke Lopez, Darren Williams, and Joe Johnson. Uh, that team was supposed to be running the Eastern Conference. Um, and they gave away their entire future to do so. I mean, several first-round picks to the Celtics, which they were anticipating were not going to be very high selections, but luckily for the Celtics ended up being very high selections, turning into <laughs> Jason Tatum. Most notably. Yeah. And that team, that Nets team just never came together. I mean, they lost a series to the Bulls back when it was the Nate Robinson, Kirk Heinrich, you know, kind of gridded out Bulls. And Joe Kim Noah. Yeah, Joe Kim Noah, exactly. Like that just, that team was, that was just built on grit and grit alone. Um, I don't think they had, I don't think they had Paul Pierce and. KG for that team. Was that just that was Darren Williams and Joe Johnson? Yeah. Yeah, hold on. I'll look up. And, the... and Brooke Lopez. So still should have won. But What year was that? The 20... 2014. 2013, 2014? Yes. Okay, they went 44 and 38. Yeah, oh, yeah. Jason Kidd was their head coach. <laughs> that was weird. Yeah, they had <laughs> Gerald, or they had... Uh, so the trade, the trade was they traded Gerald Wallace... Chris Humphreys, and three future picks to the Celtics for Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, and Jason Terry. They had the largest payroll in the NBA, and they went on to lose to the defending two-time NBA champion Miami Heat in the Eastern Conference semifinals in five games. So this team, like, maybe while they, they made it to the playoffs, another team that, you know, had some success, this team was supposed to be kind of like the Lakers, a team that competed with the super team Miami Heat that you know you had the playoff experience mixed with the you know Darren Williams Joe Johnson kind of guys with Brooke Lopez holding it down the center and it just it never worked it they never reached the expectations that were there for them yeah that's a good list for NBA I mean the one thing I remember the most from that season with the Nets was the time that Jason Kidd was out of timeouts and he spilled water yeah. onto the court <laughs> got a technical foul yeah I mean that's and that's probably the most memorable part of that season I think they were on yeah they were on the NBA or excuse me on Sports Illustrated cover Brooklyn's new look Nets who wants a piece of them <laughs> turns out like everybody wanted a piece of it <laughs> <laughs> who else you got cj i mean that's all i got that's okay those are the teams that i thought were i thought you had an nfl team you wanted to bring up um not that i can think of offhand 2019 oh of course the cleveland browns <laughs> the cleveland browns who you know everybody was talking about obj jarvis landry baker mayfield uh, supposed to have the high flying offense, Freddie Kitchens, and Baker's all of a sudden in all these commercials. Oh my God, the Hulu commercials 
of him cleaning the stadium. They were running that in the playoffs. Progressive, progressive. Right, progressive. And then the Hulu commercials were yes. separate. So yeah, the, yeah, yeah. two different commercials, but say, he wasn't those companies' commercials. Yeah, they were airing all those commercials when the in Browns the were not in the playoffs. Um, and he's like, I have a lot of people coming here tonight. And you're like, no, you don't. You don't have anybody coming here. I was like, you can leave this place as filthy as you want. Nobody's coming. <laughs> and one part about them, being a Bengals fan, you're going to have to face them two times a year, which, like, while I, I still am nervous about them, I, I don't love the fact that they look like they've gotten better from last year. One thing that I will regret, I think, is the Bengals in Week 17 were playing the Browns. And the Bengals had already clicked the top pick, so I was back to rooting for the Bengals to win. Um, and there was a report that came out before the game that said, if the Browns beat the Bengals, Freddie Kidd might keep his job. And I was like, what a ridiculous, <laughs> what a ridiculous narrative and thought that, like, if this guy can beat the one in fourteen Bengals, then he's worthy of another season. <laughs> And he ended up losing to the Bengals. (laughs) (laughs) And while it was nice to, like, see the overhyped Browns get beaten pretty well, and Baker, I think, threw three picks against this 2-14 and terrible Bengals team that was, like, the worst Bengals team of all time, uh, there's a part of me that still is like, you know, we should have lost that game. Could have played Freddie Kitchens twice again. <laughs> Could have had that in the division, but we missed, nice out, on, we missed out at least two more games against Freddie Kitchens. Oh, man. I would have loved to have those two games against Freddie Kitchens, too. Yeah, it was just, and we ruined it. <sighs> Come on. The Bengals you guys can't almost, even tank right. I know. The Bengals, well, no, they did tank right. We they got did tank one. right. We got number one. But, man, that would have just been a nice cherry on top. If we get Joe Burrow and we get to play him against Freddie Kitchens. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. What a list, CJ. This was so much fun. This was, this was sure. a great time. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on, Jack. This was, this was a blast. Out of all these teams that we listed, if you had to crown most disappointing, who is it? Most disappointing team of all that we've... Uh, it's hard to to go past the 2012-2013 Lakers. Yeah. It's hard to say another team was more disappointing given the entire trajectory. It's the NBA championship favorites to we can't find an answer for Eddie Curry to <laughs> Mike D'Antoni to swept in the playoffs. <laughs> yeah, I would I definitely I would agree with you. I think you could give out awards in this category like most overhyped was that the and then you could have a joint between most overhyped and disappointing which would probably be the eagles of 2011 right overhyped themselves that could be like the browns from last year too yeah the browns would definitely be on that on that list but in terms of just strictly most disappointing the lakers for sure cj this was so much fun are you doing well right now during the quarantine period? I'm doing as, as well as I can. You know, well, I want everything to go back to normal, want to be able to go back to sitting in a restaurant and, and having a nice lunch or a nice dinner and 
you know, all things considered, I'm doing okay. Yeah, I mean, it's temporary. We're going to get through this. I think now that we're starting to get somewhat used to the way this whole thing is going, now that we have expectations and it's becoming a normalcy of sorts, I think it's getting easier, at least for me. Yeah, and, you know, good thing video games exist and video calling exists and we have all these modes of communication. So... If, if there's an era where this needed to happen, this is probably the era where, yeah. you know, it was the most uh, convenient, tolerable. Yeah. yeah. Well, CJ, what are you playing right now? Uh, well, okay, here we go. Red Dead Redemption 2. <laughs> I, I downloaded or I bought FIFA 20, and I think I'm going to regret that purchase. Um, I really don't like EA games anymore. <laughs> um, and I strongly, strongly, strongly urge any of your viewers to not buy Madden. <laughs> Jack, if you ever get, if you ever get a sponsorship from, from Madden, I, uh, you know, I give you full permission to take out this part, this segment of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, they just, it's just a really bad game right now. Uh, so I hope 2k gets back in the NFL range but so those are my two new generation games another game that i have picked up it's a little nerdy uh picked it up i used to play it all the time age of empires never played that one is that a is that a fall game it's a computer game it used to be one that you know you put a got the cd and put it into your computer and and played that way now you can play it online um great it's it's a strategy game medieval war game it's uh it's a little nerdy, but, you know, passes the time. So I hooked up. I borrowed my buddy's Wii. He never uses it because he's got a Switch. And so I'm playing old GameCube games. So I was just playing Super Mario Sunshine right before uh, we got on this call. And uh, I've been enjoying that. A little bit of Slugfest and NFL Blitz as well. Uh, good, Great games. Yeah. Great games. And Slugfest, you got to... Kind of make trades knowing what you know now. <laughs> yeah. I remember I used to always get a bargain for like CC Sabathia in the old games because they didn't they didn't value him the way I valued him. Yeah, we we had <laughs> got a big advantage playing it. But hey, CJ, this was so much fun. This was great. We'll have to have you back sometime soon. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to say while you're here? And would you like to throw out your Twitter handle or anything of that nature? No, no need to throw out anything of that nature. Just thanks for having me on, Jack. It's always a, always a pleasure uh, to come on to your podcast. And uh, I hope that when you do your AFC North uh, preview again, that I can get another shot and hopefully <laughs> redeem myself after last year's terrible predictions <laughs> all right well we'll book it well we'll definitely do that in <laughs> august or so it'll be fun sounds good jack wow what a marathon of an episode i had so much fun with cj tonight we went over two hours long but i hope all of you enjoyed it and stuck around for the whole thing once again i'm gonna try to make this sign off quick thank you all so much for listening to the most disappointing teams of the new millennium that was a list of well over 25 teams and we made it all the way and we had a lot of fun doing so so once again thank you to cj for joining me coming up 
on the podcast later this week, I'm going to be interviewing and speaking with former Survivor contestant from season 38, The Edge of Extinction. Reem Daly will join me. So excited to talk with Reem and hear about her experience on Survivor. Should be a lot of fun. You're going to want to tune in and listen to that episode. Subscribe to the Jack Vita Show so that you can get that episode right as it becomes available. And you will never miss out whenever there is fresh content for you, the listeners. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Jack Vita Show. That's the name of this podcast. Until next time, I'm Jack Vita. Bring in the dancing lobsters. <laughs>